Welcome to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. Hi everyone and welcome to the first show of 2021. I hope you all had a great end to the year and were able to spend some quality time with family and friends after what, and look I am conscious of peddling the same lines out as everyone else, a very difficult 2020. In terms of the show, it was business as usual, and I know a lot of you really appreciated having the familiarity of the show as a great resource for your work in sponsorship. Of course, this show would be nothing without the amazing guests that agree to come on the show and take us inside their sponsorship work. In 2020, we released 13 episodes, which saw us reach 91 episodes in total. As we do at the start of each year, since we launched the show, we take a look back at the best bits from each of our guests. With the help of the ever-present Daniel Collier-Hill, Corps Commercial Director, APAC, we've gone back through each episode and pulled out what we think is the most important or insightful thing each guest has said. Hi, I'm Daniel Oyston, host of Inside Sponsorship, and you are listening to episode 92, brought to you by Core Software. Thanks for joining us. Wherever you are in the world and whatever your role is in the sponsorship industry, it is great to have you with us for the first show of 2021. Now... The first shout out of 2021 goes to Paul Brown, who is a recruitment administrator at Allen and Overy and who connected with me on LinkedIn and wrote, really enjoying the Inside Sponsorship podcast at the moment. So keep up the good work that I will try to do, Paul. Thanks for getting in touch. And I hope you have a huge start to the year. Now, normally we'd welcome Daniel Collier-Hill, Corps Commercial Director APAC, to join us to discuss his latest blog. But as this is the best of our industry guest show, I thought it might be good to just go back and remind you of some of the great blogs Daniel and others have written in 2020, which have been discussed on the show. So you can either head back to each episode, and Daniel's discussion about his blog will be at the start of each show, or you can head to coresoftware.com and head to the resources section and the blog and read the blog for yourself. But in episode 91, Daniel discussed what type of report will have the most impact on sponsorship strategy in 2021. In episode 90, he joined us to look at how to unlock sponsorship data and begin to use it more. Three things that will provide both short and long-term benefits to sponsorship managers was covered off in episode 89. Daniel wrote a three-part series on hacking sponsorship, which he spoke about in episodes 86, 87 and 88. And he looked at hacking strategy, headcount, creative, asset management, perceived value and audience segmentation. There was a team effort in episode 85 which looked at some of the global sponsorship trends that were happening at the time and Daniel was joined by Derek Stanick, Core Software's VP Sales and also Alex Hay who at the time was Core Software's VP Commercial and Strategy. In episode 84 and still relevant as we look to start 2021 as best as we can, Daniel looked at what to consider when returning to sell sponsorship in the context at the time of COVID-19 only being a few months old. In episode 83, and it still has a lot of good things to keep in mind, even though we are eight months down the track, but Daniel looked at COVID-19 sponsorship, what's now and what's next. Episode 82 saw Mark Thompson, cause then head of international business, join the show to discuss how in this very tough time for our industry, it is important for us all to be supporting each other in sponsorship to navigate those uncertain times. Sam Irvine, cause then director, customer strategy and success, Australasia, looked at governing body versus pro team, which has the greater commercial advantage, and that was in episode 81. In episode 80, Daniel looked at quantity versus quality, the fan segmentation debate in sponsorship. And way back in episode 79, Mark Thompson, cause then head of international business, kicked off the first episode of the year by joining the show to look at the changing face of broadcast and what this means for broadcast partnerships. 
As I said, you can head back to each episode and listen to those blog discussions, which all kick off each episode. So they're easy to find. They're just at the start of the episode there. Or you can head to coresoftware.com to read the blog itself. It is clear that this show would be nothing without the amazing guests that agree to come on the show and take us inside their sponsorship work. As always, I can't thank each and every one of them enough for finding some time in their busy schedules to come on the show and share their experiences and knowledge, insights and advice and help you, the listeners, learn and be better in your industry. As such as we do at the start of each year since we launched this show, we take a look back at the best bits from each of those guests and we've gone back through each episode and pulled out what we think is the most important or insightful thing each guest has said. Starting in January with episode 79, James Begley from Pickstar took us inside athlete appearances and sponsorship. Has how brands work with athletes been pretty stable in recent times or is it like most areas of communications these days where things are changing heavily? I think it's really in flux. I think it's definitely shifting. What you're seeing now is is Brands are less inclined to go for, you know, three, four, five megastars, and that's kind of it. That's their marketing dollar spent in terms of talent, and they'll put them on three-year deals and, you know, we'll just work with those talent. They're much more fragmented now in the way that they approach things. So brands would rather engage talent at a more micro level, you know, in a spot sense. So we'll work with you for a few months. There'll be, uh, you know, aspects to that deal but then we'll shake hands and we'll say thanks. And they'll do that. They'll, they'll carve up the same marketing dollar and maybe have one ambassador and, and sort of, um, you know, major talent. And then the rest will just be specific and relevant to their needs for that point in time for whatever they're doing. So from a, a brand point of view, the, the logistics of it are, are increasing ever more. From a brand agency point of view, it's becoming a lot harder because they're having to, you know, spend less money per talent, but then they've still got a lot of organisation. And then from the the talent's point of view, they're becoming much more savvy and much more active at knowing what their worth is across digital, you know, in person and from an ambassadorial point of view. So you you might say brands are, are, are sort of keeping the same amount of spend, but are broadening the talent pool and and talent themselves are becoming more educated about the process. In episode 80, we went inside sponsorship data, digital and analytics with Eddie Fitzgibbon from Forefront. Now, this next question is a bit of a, a, well, it's a very leading question and I think I have a good grasp on the area. Well, I like to tell myself I do, but we're here to hear your opinion. So while it might seem a little bit of a superficial question or a leading question, I'm, I'm really keen to get your views from where you sit in the industry because in the past, we never really had access to great first-party fan data. It was maybe, even if we were collecting it, it was all over the shop in terms of where it sat in the organisation, who controlled it, who was collecting it, who had access to it. So today, how important really is that first-party data for teams? Because as you mentioned before, we can pull data from lots of different sources, but that first-party data that teams are collecting themselves, how important is it? Because the rights holders and especially the sponsorship and commercial teams are probably going to want to be accessing it, right? It's super, super important. And that goes to the, you know, the question before about making sure that you're on good terms with your fans and you're not abusing it. I mean, rights holders 
teams. They're in enviable positions due to the love of the fans for the team. And so those fans are much more likely to hand over data and not ask questions than they would just say a bank or a random salesperson that picks up the phone and, and, and wants to sell you a used car. So teams can use this information in so many different ways. So, you know, to better understand who their fans are, and that can lead to you know, improved fan experiences, more tailored content, a better marketing strategy, personalised ticket offers, more authentic brand partnerships, and better sponsorship activation platforms. And you can go on and on and on. First party data is you know, it's, it's truly a gold mine, and, and properties are missing out on a huge opportunity to build a deeper connection with their fans and generate incremental revenue if they are not using it. So you're right, and it's a leading question, and 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 the answer is, um, of course. 100% uh, true, but it's then what you do with that data to enhance the fans' experience and get them to love the team even more. Then it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy for um, monetization down the road. John Balkum joined us in episode 81 and took us inside three win sponsorships. And now that you have the book, you've you've arranged modern sponsorship into phases, with the mid-80s to the mid-90s being the awareness phase. Then came the activation phase in the 90s and the 2000s, and then the content phase from the 2000s to the mid-2010s. And you argue that we are now in the purpose phase. What does the purpose phase look like? What, what have you written about there? The purpose phase to me means that Consumers don't care about your sponsorship deals and activations unless your sponsorship activations show that you care about consumers, right? I think you'll see, you're starting to see this quite a bit, uh, but more and more over you know, 2020 and going forward, you're going to see more brands, teams, and athletes building purposeful sponsorship deals that are focused on things like sustainability and equality and inclusion, health and well-being. Right. To me, now we're, we're shifting into a phase of sponsorship where it, it, it can't just be about this brand is associated with this team or this brand is associated with this athlete. Well, why? What's, what's the purpose here? How are you making the world a better place? And why should I, as a consumer, care about this, this partnership? Right. That's what I, I mean by the purpose phase is that you're going to see there's bigger, uh, there's a bigger reason, or there's a there's a bigger purpose behind these partnerships, and you know there's some great examples that I've I've observed uh, in in recent months that I think are kind of good templates for for people uh, as we shift into the purpose phase. But maybe we can get in, into that a little bit later. Um, there, I, I I love some of the examples that are coming out of the, the NBA. We went inside sponsorship contracts during a crisis in episode 82 with James Earl from Flaggate Lawyers. The term unprecedented keeps getting used, and of course, rightly so, but because of how this situation is unprecedented, are there any areas of contracts that you're seeing that that are coming to light that people are realising are just not robust enough to cover off something like this? And it's it's leaving organisations, whether that's rights holders or brands, exposed right now. I certainly, I think it's fair to say that not a lot of contracts uh, that we've been looking at fully deal with this situation. Hindsight's a great thing, but you know. We all know what it's like to be in the heat of negotiating a deal, to get the deal over the line, and people sort of getting frustrated at wanting to sort of get things done and, and sort of move on. And obviously, 
at that time when you're negotiating a deal, understandably, and I've been in these situations many times, you know, the, the principals, the parties, might not be too focused on what happens if there's a pandemic because, for a start, up until a month or two ago, that hadn't really been a big issue for the sport ever. What we are therefore finding is that, you know, there might be provisions in agreements that deal with kind of you know, early termination or non-provision of rights. What you get in a lot of cases, though, is that as sponsorships have become increasingly complex, they're not just about, you know, in-stadia advertising, for example. They have huge exposure to digital rights uh, inventory and, and exposure to data, all things which are good. On the one hand, that has meant that you've got rights holders selling a whole lot more. On the other hand, it means that um, there is a sort of a, a much bigger pie. And quite often you find that the, the fee that is paid by a sponsor is not allocated to each of those different sets of inventory in terms of the sponsorship rights. And what that means is that it's far more difficult to then decide what the cost of non-delivery of, say, you know, the uh, in, in-game uh, inventory is versus, say, some of the, shall I call it, off-the-pitch uh, inventory, which is increasingly been, being delivered, you know, in form, formats like social media and, and similar, you know. Um, so that is an area of debate where, you know, where we see quite a bit of discussion. Sponsors will say, well, you know, Let's be honest, the main part of this deal was for us to, you know, to, to have live matches televised and the other stuff was sort of peripheral. Of course, my colleagues will say, well, you know, is that really the case? Because I think it is widely agreed now that, you know, digital media is uh, and, and data usage in sponsorships is one of the very biggest uh, areas of growth that we've seen in the last probably 10 years. So, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting debate, but one where the contract is often not giving the answer immediately. In episode 83, Chris Bayless from the Sponsorship Collective took us inside events and sponsorship during a crisis. So if a rights holder wants to try and retain some income from a sponsorship, clearly as much as possible because it impacts cash flow, what sort of options are there aside from a refund? I mean, you alluded to there around seeing what they can deliver, but are there other options on the table that can be explored? If the approach that you're taking through this process is how do I retain as much money as possible, you're in trouble. The odds are stacked against you quite badly. And that is a common and understandable approach. We are salespeople. We live or, well, we don't live or die by our sales, but we keep our jobs and feed our families by our, by our sales. And so it's easy to think of it in that, in that way. Early on, Brad and I took a step back and I keep, I keep coming back to this as kind of the case study because I want to be clear, this was right for us, but this isn't necessarily what you should do as a listener. You really have to get your legal advice, get your accounting advice, review your contracts, talk to your sponsors multiple times. But anyway, so Brad and I came to the conclusion that only a live event serves the purpose. And so we wanted to reschedule, not cancel. Then we spoke to our sponsors, and instead of saying, we would like to keep as much money as possible, how can we keep it? We came to them and said, you tell us how we can be a marketing partner through all of this. You tell us how we can be the best investment you made all year once all of this is done. And if we can deliver, we're going to. And if we cannot deliver, we will give you a full refund no matter what assets we've already delivered on. That's irrelevant. Even though legally it was a defensible position. So if your goal is to keep the money, your primary goal must be to help achieve the outcomes of your sponsors. 
Sponsorship is a marketing discipline. Marketing is measured in usually in sales or at least the suite of marketing outcomes, not in how much money a property retains. So while that is your your lag measure, your lag goal, that is not how you should approach this philosophically when you're trying to negotiate with your sponsors. Hari Vijay Harajan, Chief Commercial Officer, joined us in episode 84 and took us inside sponsorship at one championship. You mentioned there that you're now the number four sports media organisation in the world behind the WWE, the NFL, and as you said, the NBA. Various news resources such as Forbes and CNN and Bloomberg have openly stated that one championship, while it's fourth in the world, is the largest sports media company in Asia and Asia's history. How do you begin to even... Tell the story of something that is has grown so much in such a short period of time. When we set out to do this uh, nine years ago, when our founder, CEO Chatri, uh, set out to do this, nowhere in our wildest dreams would we have imagined that this would be where we are in 2020. Having said that, I think, again, the, from day one, our business plan has always been produce content that ignites the world with hope, strength, dreams, and inspiration. And when you have that as a business plan in terms of what we are setting out to do every day, why do we wake up in the morning every day? It's to ignite that hope. Hope is such an intangible, but it's so powerful. And when you think of right now, all the negativity in the world with COVID, with politics, with, you know, how divisive societies are in general, with how social media has fractured societies. And what we are trying to do is bring people together. We want to tell people that we are one. And that's the hashtag we use also, right? We are one. And when you think of what the genesis of that, right, focus on a core set of values like integrity, respect, discipline, honor, compassion, courage, humility, focused on hero building and storytelling and bringing the world together as one. Now, that is the essence of what we do. Now, any fan wants to be a part of that. Any brand or sponsor wants to be a part of that. And ultimately, we want to touch everyone on the planet. So our values, heroes, and stories is something that's infinitely scalable. We don't appeal only to martial arts fans. We don't appeal only to sports fans. We appeal to humanity, right? Chatri always says, right, our genre is martial arts, but our platform is humanity. And when you think of that, the numbers and all of that happens in the background, and our growth happens in the background. But we are not resting, right? I mean, number four, number one, it doesn't matter to us. What we want to do is ultimately inspire every single person in the world because name one person in the world that doesn't need to be inspired. And so we won't stop until that's done. Episode 85 saw us go inside the Rajasthan Royals commercial program with their COO, Jake Lushmakram. For want of a better phrase, it's almost seductive, the reach that you can give a brand in India, but really build the brand and the connection with various aspects of the franchise. Can you talk us through some examples of when you've done that for brands? Absolutely. And I I know I've touched on a couple already, but I'll just briefly go through them again. With with Red Bull, we we talked about Red Bull Canvas Cricket and, and grassroots is so important to us. So when we were talking to them about how we could work together, that just tone resonated with both of us. And it, Red Bull is an interesting one because we're not, we're not the biggest, most followed team in the IPL. We've got a very good win record. I think we're third or fourth in terms of overall win percentage. However, we have only won the tournament once. 
um, and we are based in Rajasthan, which is in a you know big metro city. So there are challenges, and there are teams with you know bigger followings. However, what we look to do is partner with brands that have those synergies with us. Grassroots cricket was was one of those, and even before IPL, we launched a competition called Cricket Star, which was basically like Million Dollar Arm. If you've seen that film, so we actually launched that before before they did that in baseball to find the next Indian cricket talent. And we actually ended up signing a couple of players who played for us in the IPL. So it turned out that one of the, the people at Red Bull had actually been part of that cricket star competition. <laughs> um, and and that, that, that link was just amazing to, to kick things off. But they said to us, look, we could make more money if we partnered with a Mumbai. We could get more uh, you know, can sales. But in the long run, we can build a much deeper, more integrated partnership with you that will benefit both of our brands a lot more. And we want to be with people who have the same passions, drives, and and focus areas as us. So, yeah, that was fantastic to hear, and, and hence why we've been able to build this partnership with JK Lakshmi, our, our front of shirt sponsor last year. Again, they had we asked them what were their aims and how we could work together. They wanted a, a huge amount of visibility, so we said, look, why don't you work with us? You um, create a fan army, and then you bring that to every every match we play this year. We will, you know, we'll supply the the merchandise for that, and then you get great visibility, and we get a presence in each of the stadiums. And so they sent about a thousand fans to every match, home and away, which gave us a, a fantastic presence, especially because we had the pink jerseys, and they got a huge amount of coverage. Because if you've got whether it's a hundred or a thousand fans sat together in a stadium, if you're in RCB and they're all red, or you're in yellow, and you're there as this little pink pink square making a huge amount of noise you're going to get the, the the star cameras on you, which is going to be amazing for your brand. So that's another way we work well with them. They also provided us billboards all across Rajasthan, which gave both them reach and us reach, which is a great synergy. And then Inox was another one we touched on where they gave huge inventory. Before every movie in Inox cinema, we had our brand film played. And they also did sort of ticket competitions where we could build our database, which is, again, integral for building our fan base and then engaging with them and giving them that personalized content and feel that the means they grow as a fan and you can monetize them in the future. We went inside the current agency perspective in episode 86 when Andrew Clark, agency director at Octagon Australia, joined us. How do you see the perception of value and use of assets or entitlements changing, considering it's a buyer's market? Do you think we'll see some assets as more valuable than they used to be, maybe that IP stuff that you were talking about earlier, or perhaps even the opposite in that some will devalue from the perspective of, well, we can't use that anymore, or we've come to realise that these weren't as valuable as, as once thought? You use the word perceived value, which I think is interesting there. You know, because why are we perceiving value and, and not knowing actual value? You know, that's a somewhat of a, a side thought. But I think that measurement is is, is a key piece to, to all of this. You know, and I think what we'll 100% see in all of this is more time that's given to to the measurement side of things than we have before. You know, I'll, I'll give an example. We won a pitch a couple of years back, huge brand in this marketplace. And one of the key reasons we won the pitch was our ability to measure and track change in greater detail than, than their, their current solution for that. You know, but when appointed, we were never actually asked to do the work. You know, so I can't, can't imagine in the future we will find similar challenges. But you know, look, that, that's, the, that's the point about perception. How do you prove perception of, of value? But I think the second piece in relation to 
to value of assets is their relationship one to another. You know, I think historically, one of the hardest things to to measure or value in a sponsorship was the the value of IP. You know, and as such, you know, we work in reverse to get to assume values, i.e., if you combine all of the value of tangible elements together, what's left could only be IP. What else could it be, right? You know, and I think that what that's done over time is it just puts brands focus in in totally the wrong area. You know, there's so many sort of post-campaign reports you see where the media exposure alone is is well more than pays for the deal. Therefore, while there might have been some rough edges, you know, we've we've got what we've got back more than we paid for. You know, and I think it, it negatively educates the market that brand exposure is the most important thing of sponsorship, which for me is I can't get my head around that. You know, I think it's cra- I think it's crazy, and I will tell you why I think it's crazy is. If you bought a sponsorship just to put your logo in front of fans, that is literally as absurd as signing off a brand new 30-second TV ad with just your logo on the screen. Like it doesn't do anything, doesn't say anything, doesn't land anything, doesn't make you feel anything, you know. And that is ultimately we're we're littered with it. There's just brand brand slapping here, there, and everywhere. And I think that that's the part where I think we'll see a lot more interrogation going into actually how we move away from that and, and have more of a logo last thinking. And recognize that it's the IP that needs to be front and center because the reality is that's the light bulb. That's the moss and the moss of the light bulb, you know, with, with fans. I think it's it's IP and it's their passion points, branding and, and meaning that they notice from a sea of logos. You know, and it's it's that association, it's that power of that IP that they will choose to buy over other things. I think we're going to see a huge shift um, towards that what I would say, actual sports and entertainment marketing, right? Not just sports and entertainment brand placement. You know, and I think, I think further to that then comes the role of spokespeople. And, you know, we, we will see more deals with clubs supported by separate ambassador deals, etc. In episode 87, Jim Rocker and Isaac Benjamin from PRCG Sports took us inside crisis communications in sponsorship. Speaking of change, there seems to be a general consensus that measurement will get more attention and focus from both brands and consequently rights holders as, and I hate to use this such overused phrase, we return to normal, whatever that's going to look like. What role do you think measurement will have or or how will measurement change in sponsorship over the next, say, 18 to 24 months? If you'd have asked me my top two on the previous question, this would have been number two, actually. So it's a nice follow-on. I think, again, this is another area where we are lacking a little bit and have been for a while. And I think COVID will probably necessitate an acceleration for us to move towards more to stronger measurements, capabilities. So I think the change we'll see is that right now, in a lot of cases, it's not a universal truth, but I'd say it's largely true, is sponsorship is measured separately to everything else that's done from a brand in a marketing sense. So they'll, they'll measure their TV digital activity over here on the left. And on the right, there'll be this other report that comes in to show what the sponsorship is doing. It won't use the same data to tell you the result. So that's one problem. We're not integrating sponsorship into the overall measurement frameworks that brands have. And that's a responsibility, I think, of the brands to make sure it's implemented. It's considered alongside some of their other channels. But it's also, I think, a responsibility of us as an industry to make sure we are giving the right data to to enable it to be compared to other channels. And that's, I suppose, my second point on this is that right now, I think we focus too much on outputs rather than outcomes. So outputs are things like you delivered a four to one media return on investment. 
that's an output of the of the deal. Uh, it's useful. I'm not saying we should bin it all together, but it doesn't really tell you what the so what test I think would be applied there. Three to one, so what? Like, what does that actually mean? I think we need to go deeper, and that's what I mean in terms of going from an output of a media return on investment. It's just one example to more of an outcome in terms of as a result, this happened. You know, more people came to our website. It could be as simple as that, or more people bought our product would obviously be the holy grail. But that we just need to focus more on what the output of our of our activity has been. So I think those two things. So number one, making sure that we are considered alongside other channels and can be compared against them. And number two, make to, to enable that, making sure that we focus on the outcomes of our activity and actual impact to businesses, whether that's a brand uplift, whether that's a business outcome. Or another metric, as I say, it could depending on what the sector or brand is, it could be as simple as website visits, website traffic, you know, stuff like that. We need to focus a lot more on that stuff rather than some of the more superficial sounds good, but doesn't really mean anything type stuff. The measurement conversation can sometimes go on for hours, depending on which marketing function you're talking to. You spoke about there being in an exploratory phase, and we've spoken a lot about change already just in the 15 minutes or so that you and I have been talking. So for sponsorship, what do you think are the top measurement metrics that you see becoming prevalent over the next few years? As a broad brush answer to that, the the answer would be brand uplift and business impact. But to be specific into those two, so the first one, when I say brand uplift, I mean metrics like brand opinion, brand consideration. But I think at the moment, sort of going back a little bit to a previous answer, I said that we focus a lot on outputs. We say things like people that are aware of your sponsorship have a 23% are 23% more likely to consider your product. Now, that is a piece of data that's interesting, but Brands, when they're looking at consideration as a metric, if we use that one as the example, are looking at what their overall consideration is. So 23% of fans of a sponsorship that have seen the sponsorship that are aware doesn't necessarily tell them what true impact that's having to their business. So we're doing a lot of work on trying to say, well, okay, let's take consideration and let's look at what sponsorship's contribution to the brand's overall consideration is. So we can say that actually... You know, the, again, it, depending on what data we can get, we can't always answer this question. But the where we want to try and get to is to say, you know, if you if you've got of your audience brand X, you've got sixty percent of those that consider you. We can tell you because of the analysis we've done that twenty percent of that sixty percent has come from your sponsorship because of these reasons. So that's what I mean in terms of we we do provide data on brands that uh, sorry fans that are aware of um, a sponsor a sponsor's activity has a. X percent more likelihood to consider a product than a brand a fan who has not been become aware of that brand sponsorship, but it doesn't it doesn't allow the brand easily to relate it back to really what's its overall contribution to my overall piece. Hopefully that makes sense. And I suppose the second piece in terms of business impact, it, which is which sponsorship, to be honest, has always been weak at, and in some ways understandably because of the nature of some of the agreements are more brand based activity than business led, but we haven't been able to prove. The, the end impact on sales. So I think that's another area we've got to focus on. And again, we've been doing some work with some of our clients on trying to insert sponsorship data into econometric models or mixed market modeling, which actually shows the brand in a scientific way what the impact of their marketing activity has had on their bottom line. And we want to try and take sponsorship into that conversation. Because even if it's brand-led and it delivers consideration, we know that consideration ultimately will lead to sales. So let's try and isolate that where, where possible. 
as you mentioned in your question, we do have people dedicated to effectiveness. We've got a couple of marketing scientists because we really believe in this. We want to invest in this area. But the truth is we're, we're still in our, a little bit in our exploratory phase. We have products and services we can offer. But the solution we've got to, we've now got a raft of case studies of having worked with you know, four or five big brands over the last year or two. And the answer is always somewhat different. And it just gives you that great perspective to be able to look at different ways in which we can prove that and to varying degrees we can prove it. But I think the win is that we really are now starting to bring sponsorship into that discussion around other channels and actually start to isolate sponsorship's contribution to brand metrics, but also sponsorship's contribution to business impact as well. And that's ultimately what brands will use to determine, and, and broadcasters and others, to determine whether their investment in a property is worthwhile. And ultimately, one of the impacts of COVID is going to be, at least for the short to medium term, is that brands and other spenders of money are going to be very tight. They're going to only spend where they have to and only spend on things that they have a you know, certain degree of confidence will work. And I think that's why we need to take sponsorship into these conversations so we can show them that, look, this is what sponsorship can do for you. This is why you should invest your money rather than some of these slightly sidebar types of conversations we tend to have. Episode 88 saw us go inside the agency Fuse with Stephen Hutchison, Managing Director. That's great advice, but let's look at how that then leverages up to the organisation level, the rights holder, the sports team, and people who are sponsoring them. As I said earlier, professional athletes being caught up in a scandal is something that unfortunately seems to happen on a near regular basis, and this really can put a sponsor in a difficult spot. They likely issued a statement in the past when they first signed that sponsorship, or maybe it was a renewal that said something along the lines of, we're delighted to have come on board as a sponsor and our cultures as organisations align perfectly and we're really looking forward to helping the community and all these really positive things. When that's no longer the case and a sponsor feels like their values don't align with the sports team and the rights holder anymore thanks in part to an embarrassing or highly inappropriate action or accusation towards the athlete, how do you advise the sports team, the organisation, the rights holder to respond to that publicity that a sponsor is going to walk away? Yeah, that, that's a really tricky one for a sponsor. Like you said, it, it puts them in a, in a bad spot. You know, there, there's a couple of different ways you could go with it. And a lot of it does depend on what the scandal is or what the public knows about the scandal. So if it's a he said, she said type of thing, you know, basically it's in your best interest to not just immediately abandon the athlete if you're the sponsor. Typically, if you could stick with them, kind of say, listen, if what we're hearing is true, it would be very upsetting. But right now we're giving the benefit of our doubt. We've had a longstanding relationship. So-and-so is a good person. Uh, you know, you want to, you know, come across with things like that. And if they are proven to be, innocent or that there are some extenuating circumstances that the public didn't know, you'll come off looking better for being loyal. However, there are some situations where video is recorded, which with everyone in the world having a phone, that you know happens quite often. If there's a, uh, a portion of a video, even if it's not the entire thing and we don't know what led up to it, but if it's very obviously damning, that's a little bit of a different scenario. It might be the case where the sponsor wants to say, from what we've seen, this doesn't look very good. We're temporarily suspending our relationship with this person until further details are made available. We hope that this is not true, whatever the case may be. But I think you have to judge each situation a little bit differently because 
there are certain situations where a bit more blatant than others, and you can't just necessarily handle all those situations the same. Just to jump in and add one thing, there is a remarkable difference in extenuating factors depending on how the brand is aligned with the athlete in question. If it is, you know, a sneaker company that is sponsoring a runner, research shows that there's a lot more leeway for them to stick by someone, right? There's a reason why we're affiliated with them. If it's merely this guy's popular, we want to access his 4 million Instagram fans, but we're a watch company and you never see the athlete wearing the watch on the court, then it's a lot easier for them to step away and not feel criticized for it. But if they're saying there's a reason why we're aligning with this athlete because he uses us or because our brand is, is really closely knit, he's in our wheelhouse, then we found that sticking by an athlete in question actually carries a lot more favor. We went inside Burger King sponsorship of Stephen E. Jeff C. with Alex Tunbridge, Chief Executive in Episode 89. This next question is going to be a bit of a long one as I collect my thoughts and, and sort of phrase it for you. So, so bear with me, but I want to pick up on that point around you having to hold your nerve because you knew what was going on and there was some questions around kits and sponsors and things like that because Burger King themselves have said that when the sponsorship was announced that many thought sponsoring Stevenage FC at the bottom of England football's fourth division at the time, that it was a bad investment. And in a media release on your own website, it said, quote, Burger King's global head of brand marketing, Marcelo Pasqua, said, we are thrilled to support Stevenage Football Club over the next two seasons. Over 265 million people play football around the world and the passion for the game is unparalleled. At Burger King, we share that passion, not only for the big teams, but also for the smaller ones that are poised for something big. End quote. That would have been read by many as a pretty bland quote about a new sponsorship. Football's big. Everyone's passionate about it. We want to support football. It's kind of stock standard stuff. But the line, poised for something big, now seems prophetic. You couldn't give too much away about the long game, as you said before. So what did you say to people when they asked, why would Burger King sponsor Stevenage FC? So we knew at the time that the goal of Burger King working with us was to turn us from a small team in the real world to the biggest team online. We always had a very clear understanding of that objective. I think on a local level, and, and certainly in the short term, I think when people were saying to us, well, why would Burger King sponsor Stevenage? We'd kind of had those uh, moments that had taken place in the months before, bringing a world title fight to the stadium, changing our brand. For us, it was all about as a small club that is in a very highly saturated area in England in terms of football clubs, particularly around London, um, Tottenham's very close to us, Arsenal, Watford, Luton Town, all of which have had very good seasons recently, expanded their stadiums, brought in new season ticket holders. We have to find a way to um, be slightly different. We have, to, we have to know what that niche is. So for us, we'd come up with this mantra of, right, well, let's be the club that tries and does things a little bit differently. Let's be a club that's connected to its community. And let's be a club that anybody can have access to. Anybody can speak to a player. Anybody can speak to myself. Anybody can speak to the chairman. Let's really play on that. And uh, for us, we, we felt it was really important that we bought, we improved our commercial outputs as a club. There was possibly some low-hanging fruit that we could go and get. And also we had to change people's perception of us. And so how we sold it to the supporters was that by bringing a blue chip company it's the first step in us changing the perception that other people had of us on a local level and on a national level. 
and eventually on an international level. Now that has probably gone full circle now. We're, we're probably equally as held on a, an international and national level in some sectors as we are on a local level here. So I think one of the key things for us has been the interaction we've received since the, the campaign from people all over the world, from fellow peers at other football clubs to other sports, NFL, NHL, NBA clubs, all getting in contact with us, recognising what we've done. So I think from a local level now, people are starting to understand that we were prepared to be bold, we were prepared to take that leap of faith. And um, now those local clubs want to come and get involved with us and, and, and ride that wave we're on. So it's, it's a real positive as well for the local businesses and local community. We were joined by Scott Tilton from Hook It in episode 90, who took us inside data and chasing sponsorship value. You mentioned some of those brands that were surprising not to be on that list. So there's maybe a suggestion that they aren't getting the value out of their sponsorships that they set out to get. And Hook It recently released a white paper titled Chasing Sponsorship Value. What sort of conversations or challenges led you and the team to create that resource? And what value did you set out to deliver to the market by producing that white paper? We really did it in conjunction with the 50 most marketed brands. So, you know, our whole focus here and our reason for being is to, you know, really support brands to help them evolve their sponsorship strategies and ultimately make their sponsorships more effective. You know, and the goal of the report was really to dive into the data and and keep in mind, uh, this was really just a view of looking at social. And, um, you know, so we looked at Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, uh, Weibo, VK, so there's a pretty broad, you know, it's a big piece of the pie and an important piece of the pie, but it's not everything. So I think what it really highlighted was that uh, not all brands are in- entirely focused on social at this point. It is really the the number one driver of activation strategies. And it's become, I think, as a result of COVID with sports being shut down or events being shut down, it really put a huge microscope on the importance of social media and digital media and how you can engage fans in a in a time when there's no sporting events. So, um, so yeah, so the goal was really just to dive into the data and really understand, you know, how has the pandemic impacted sports sponsorship strategies, the activation strategies, and just who was getting value, you know, when you look at 12 months and half of which was normal times and half of which was COVID times, you know, um, just what did the data show? And uh, so it was just a really fascinating view to really dive into it. And finally, for our last episode of 2020, we went inside hyperpassions in sponsorship when Luke Haynes from MNC Saatchi Sport and Entertainment joined us in episode 91. How do you feel our industry, the sponsorship industry, has responded to audience demographics? Is it something that you see both rights holders and brands as having used well in sponsorship or is there still room for more improvement? And if there's room for improvement, how can they and where can they improve? I'm not a huge fan of the way um, audiences are segmented at the moment. I think it's it's a really really blunt tool at the moment. What I see coming across my desk when I get when I get briefs from agencies or from clients, sorry, or whether I'm speaking to media agencies about how they're segmenting an audience, I I feel like we're still far too broad, um, and I think that is you know it's borderline disrespectful to the people that we're talking about when we're bucketing people together that actually have very little in common and have very few of the same interests and passions, but because they happen to live in a certain part of the country and earn the same amount of money and are of a similar age, we just lump them all in together. And I think that's a really, really blunt way of trying to solve an audience problem. 
I know I keep saying this, but I am flabbergasted at the amount of generosity from our guests in not just finding the time to come on the show in their busy schedules, but also their willingness to take us inside their work and candidly share their experiences, knowledge, insights, and advice, which is all about helping you, the listeners, learn and be even better in the industry. So for one last time, thanks to all those that came on the show in 2020. It is very much appreciated, not just by myself, but the wider team at CORE and each and every listener. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston. That's O-Y-S-T-O-N. And of course, I would love to hear from you so that I can give you a shout out in the next episode. That's a wrap for our first episode of 2021, and I trust that it has helped inspire you to make 2021 the best it can be for yourself and your organisation. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes and to subscribe to the show, search for Inside Sponsorship on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Also, for more free industry-specific resources, including blogs, ebooks, white papers, and our Insights newsletter, head to coresoftware.com. Finally, be sure to follow Core Software on Twitter and LinkedIn.